0: Welcome, this is Trusting God When It Hurts. We are uh, in session number six already, which is kind of crazy. We've been using a book by a guy named Dan McCartney called Why Does It Have to Hurt as kind of an outline basis for our study. And, uh, And so far in our series, we have talked about why they're suffering at all. We've talked about suffering in God. We've talked about lament, suffering and lament. Um, and last week we talked about suffering and God's sovereignty. And this week, Lord willing, we are going to talk about or explore uh, the lessons that we learned from the book of Job in suffering. So, lessons, the lessons of Job. And before we look at those lessons, I I would definitely love to pray because we need God's help. Our Father and our God, thank you for bringing us here this morning. We do pray that, Lord, as we open and at least peek at some of the passages in the the book of Job, that, Lord, you would help us as, as we navigate suffering in our own lives as we attempt to walk with those um, those that we we love who are suffering Lord would you would you grow us in wisdom would you grow us in compassion would you just help us as as uh, as you've called us uh, to suffer in this life Lord would you would you help us now we pray in Jesus name amen So as sufferers, so the objectives of our time together this morning, let me just state these. Uh, these, are, these are listed as the different lessons on your note sheets, but really those are our objectives for this morning, both as sufferers and friends of sufferers, right? So in both, both roles, we want to learn the following uh, from the book of Job. So number one, We want to learn that we likely, we likely don't know the reasons for suffering, okay? We might call that wisdom about suffering. We want to grow in wisdom. Another uh, objective for this morning is that we should, from the book of Job, we would learn that we should cling to God honestly in suffering, and we're gonna call that patience in suffering, we also want to learn that we can know that suffering will come to an end. We can call that victory over suffering. And then the fourth lesson that I hope we can address this morning is we can hope in our Redeemer in suffering. And we, we could summarize that as hope in suffering. I'm gonna rock and roll because we're way late in starting. Apologies for that, and um, we'll we'll just we'll do the best we can this morning. So. The book of Job, many of you have read that. Some of you may be students of that. But the book of Job is an honest portrayal of God allowing or we could say ordaining, right? Allowing or ordaining a good man to suffer. I mean good, relatively speaking, right? And that might not sound super shocking to you at this point. But think about the general wisdom of the ancient Near East at that point in time. The, the book of Job is a shocking treatment of suffering, and here's, here's why. In the ancient Near East, the received wisdom, if you will, was basically that the more you suffer, the more you've disapproved God, or the more you have been uh, disapproved by God. So the, there was a direct connection between a person's suffering and their bad behavior. The more you suffer, the more you must have offended God. The less you suffer, the more you must have pleased God. Does that make sense? So that that was the wisdom, generally speaking, of the ancient Near East. And to be be fair, I mean, there is some truth to that because we, we learn that, you know, when we sin, there are usually consequences. The book of Proverbs is a book that talks about how God has created a moral universe. And generally speaking, you know, when we, when we follow his prescriptions, things go well. And when we, when we turn away from those, when we don't follow those prescriptions, there are consequences. That's generally, generally true. But that's not the whole story. It's not the whole story. So please hear me say that. And the book of Job, and really we see this throughout the whole scripture, that there's more to the story than that. The book of Job is written to tell us that that's not the whole story. And like I said, the book of Job would have been shocking to the original readers in the ancient Near East for this reason. It tells us, the book of Job tells us that Job suffered because God favored him. Job suffered because of God's favor and approval. In fact, One author said it like this, rather than being a sign of disfavor with God, Job's suffering stood as a sign of God's favor and approval. And like I'm trying to underscore, that message would have been shocking to the original readers. How can that be? And so we want to explore that a little bit this morning. What this means for us is that we often don't know the reason why suffering comes to us, okay? That's lesson one, and we're gonna talk more about that. But let me, let me orient you to the book of Job real quick. Let's, let's at least get oriented here so that you can kind of hear the beginning of the book and, and see how, how this is set up. So Job uh, chapter one, verse one says this, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That's how the book begins. And it goes on to talk about he had a lot of camels, a a lot of daughters and sons. He was very wealthy, in other words. And when it says that Job was blameless and upright, it doesn't mean he was sinless, right? But it means he was the real deal, the genuine article, right? He wasn't sinless, but he walked with God, okay? And he was, he was very wealthy. And then we read in verses six and following, we read this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. How can Satan be in God's presence? That's for another time. There's mystery here, right? But this heavenly council gathers together and Satan comes with them. And Yahweh said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answers, And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And Yahweh said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And Yahweh said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only Against him, do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh. So Satan basically says to God, the only reason that Job fears you is because you've blessed him. Take away his blessings and he will curse you to your face. And so God gives Satan permission to attack Job's possessions, but not Job, you know, his person. And so, you know, if we kept reading in chapter one, we read that that all Job's possessions, all his children, his wealth, gone. And we also read in chapter one that Job, in response, did not sin. In chapter two, Satan comes around again and says to the Lord, Well, okay look, the reason he didn't curse you to his face is because you didn't touch his person. But let me mess with Job personally and he will curse you to your face. And so the Lord gives permission. He says, okay, but you may not kill him. You may not take his life. And we read again, well, really the remaining 40 chapters then are... Job wrestling with God and with friends and with himself about this. But, but we read early on that Job did not sin. And here's what's interesting about this book as a whole. Job's friends, throughout, throughout the book, Job's friends say many things that are actually doctrinally correct about God. Job's friends say many things that are doctrinally correct about God. And Job, if you've read the book, he says things that seem to cross the line toward God. And yet, at the end of the book, God says to one of Job's friends, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Where was that? That is Job 42, verse 7. And so, what I want to do is, I want us to look clo- a little more closely at the lessons of Job. Okay? So like I said, the first lesson of Job is that we likely don't know the reasons for suffering. Do you want to be wise about your thinking about suffering? Then Job teaches us that step one is getting this much clearer. You likely don't know the reasons for your suffering or your friend's suffering. I mean, you may know some, but you likely don't have the whole picture. And so let's explore that a little bit. We see this in the opening chapters of Job. We have a window, like I've read, into the heavenly council. Neither Job nor his friends had, were privy to that information. They have no idea that Job is suffering because he has favor with God. And like I mentioned, we also see this in the closing chapters of the book. And it's interesting to me that, I mean, for, for chapter upon chapter, Job is, is pleading with God. If I could just meet God and plead my cause, you know, if I could just meet God and him explain to me what's going on, and when Job finally does meet God, surprisingly, God doesn't provide answers. He doesn't give Job answers, in fact, he questions Job about his understanding of the natural world. You know, where were you when I made such and such and such? How do you understand, you know, the Pleiades, the the stars, the constellation? Job, where were you? And God's point seems to be this. If you can't master and understand the natural world, the mysteries of the natural world, if you can't fathom that and understand that, then Job, how in the world are you going to understand suffering and pain and evil, the moral world? That seems to be the message. And so far in this study, we've said that God does allow suffering for his glory and the good of his people. But what I'm saying to you this morning is that for any particular instance of suffering in your life, in my life, in your friend's life, we don't know the specific reasons why, often, okay? So I guess you can all go home. End of, end of Sunday school. No, we'll, 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 try to keep, we'll try to keep going. What's interesting, though, is that we instinctively ask why when pain and suffering comes. It's as natural to ask why when we experience pain as it kind of is to when we put our hand on a hot stove to, to pull it away. We instinctively ask why both sufferers and as friends of sufferers. One pastor says it like this, when we're suffering... There may be no question we ask more than why, and nothing we like less than people's attempt to answer. Right? Why do you think we instinctively ask why? Why do you think we instinctively ask why when pain and suffering comes? Russ? Okay. We seek our own happiness and say that last part. Something gets in the way of it. Something gets in the way of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Alicia. It's like the guy that goes to the doctor and says, Doctor, it hurts when like you do this. And the doctor says, Can you do that? Yeah. We want to understand why it hurts. Yeah. So that we stop doing. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that part of it. Yeah, Can yeah. You? Yeah, very good. Very good, Willie Some of it is probably a sinful pride. I have been I have been good. why should this happen to me? Okay. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That could that could be. yes yeah. Okay, yeah, maybe there's some even some conditioning there, like like like, like that's typically the pattern as a, as a child. Yeah, I do something wrong, I get I get disciplined, you know, even in the be- best sense of the word. Yeah, th- those are those are excellent. I-, I think those are, you know, there's 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 truth to all that. And I think I think at some level we maybe think that if we could just understand why. That somehow that would lessen or maybe even eliminate the pain, right? Maybe it would yeah. fix it? Yeah, maybe it would, it would fix the hurt, right? Yeah. yeah. And again, we're facing the broken world again. I mean, we constantly are facing that. And on the positive side, though, maybe it would be a desire to press into God's deeper understanding. I mean, sometimes it might be in the space, but sometimes it might be just, Lord, I want to understand you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's very good, Jenny. And, and don't hear me saying that, I, I mean, the psalmists say why, right? So it seems like we have, you know, scripture that gives us permission to ask that, right? So I'm not saying that's, that's wrong or we shouldn't. I, I'm just saying we tend, to, we tend to instinctively respond to why. And there's probably a number of reasons, you know, why we do that. But the point is, we often just can't answer that question definitively. Anyway, yes. Do you think it's possibly a control issue? Yeah. the 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 comment or question was, "Do you think it's possibly a control issue?" Yeah, it could be all of those things. Like, like if I could just understand why, then 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 it just makes more. I can get my arms around it, and yeah. Yeah, potentially that, that's part of it too. So, um, and, and as we look at the book of Job, as you read through Job, at first Job thought he could understand his suffering. He, he thought that God owed him an explanation for his suffering. And, and we find out that he was wrong in the book. God never did provide him an explanation. And also we find uh, with Job's friends, Job's friends thought that they, they really understood what was going on, right? And they were even more wrong than Job. And so the point is we often or likely don't know why or the reasons for suffering. I've heard it said this way, Suffering is not a riddle to solve but an experience, okay, suffering is not a riddle to solve but an experience to be processed and assimilated. So that's why I say, you know, we tend to want to figure out why, that's not necessarily bad, or as friends, we want to give answers. And I think coming to grips with this fact that suffering is not a riddle to be solved, but an experience to be processed and assimilated. Because even the best words, as friends of sufferers, even the best words, and we should say something, okay, but even the best words are not going to fix our friends' pain and hurt. Yeah. Yeah. So the first lesson in the book of Job teaches us that we likely don't know the reasons for, uh, for suffering. The second lesson of Job, and I'm going to just rock and roll. I was hoping we could talk more in between since we got started late. So I'm just going to rock and roll a little bit this morning. Um, the second lesson of Job is that we should cling to God honestly in suffering. We mentioned that at the, that the end of the book of Job, God commends Job for speaking what is right about him, which is somewhat surprising. I mean, from chapters three to 31, Job, it, he, he says a lot of different things to God. You know, there's complaint. there's, what did I say here? He begins by telling God his complaints and his confusion. Uh, For example, in Job chapter 7, verse 11, Job says this, I will not restrain my mouth. I'm not going to shut up. I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. He's talking to God. I'm not holding back. And in Job chapter 7, verse 20, he says this. Why have you made me your mark? Like, why have you attacked me? Why have I become a burden to you? And then later, his complaints become outright accusation. In Job chapter 9, verses 17 and then 22 through 23, if you want to look at these later, He says this in Job 9, 17. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. Basically, he's unjust. You're doing this to me without cause. And then he continues. It is all one, therefore I say. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. I mean, those are pretty serious accusations. He's accusing God of being unjust. And that's basically chapters 3 through 31. And yet, at the end of Job, God says that Job spoke what is right about him. How does that work? So hang with me. Now, if you turn to James chapter 5, I think I got this for you. Yeah. James chapter 5, uh, the mystery increases a little bit, I think, because in James, it says, as an example of suffering and patience, brother, brothers, and he goes on to say a few other things. And then he says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. So this, this idea that Job is this paragon of, you know, suffering with patience and and steadfastness. I mean, how does all that fit together? Job's complaints, his not holding back, his seeming accusations against God, and then God affirms him, and in in the New Testament, he's held up as this, this paragon of, Patience and steadfastness and suffering, and here's how I think it all fits together. Job never stopped calling on God. Job shows us that patience and suffering looks like clinging to God honestly. If you read chapters three through 31, Job, he complains. He seemingly accuses, but he's always turning to God over and over and over and over. And this means that for us, the proper response to suffering is not pretending that we're fine. Job doesn't do that. Or speaking pious platitudes, right? Job doesn't do that either. or trying to tell God what you think he wants to hear or trying to be good, you know. Here's the thing, God knows our hearts, so he knows what's going on anyway, right? But there's something about when we talk to God honestly out loud and tell him what we really think, there's something about us knowing him and, and being known by him, like he knows us, okay? Right? But there's something about when I do that honestly, I, I know him and I'm known by him in a way that pretend, pretending to be good or speaking pious platitudes, I, I just can't get there. And God commends Job for that. When we hide our true feelings, uh, when we hide our true feelings from God, we, we're just being dishonest he can take it he can handle it and so if you take to heart this lesson from Job God insists that we that we don't try to pretend what pleases him is when we cling to him honestly in our suffering I mean, you can think about various examples of this throughout the scripture. Like Jeremiah says to God, you deceived me. Jeremiah 27, I think it is. Remember Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law. At the very beginning of the book of Ruth, she says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. And here's the other thing. Actually, Job's friends, they suggest that Job is wrong to express his negative emotions to God. You could look at Job 15, verses 12 and 13. They they suggest that he's wrong for expressing his negative emotions to God. But at the end of the, the book, they're rebuked for their dishonesty. As one pastor says this, Honesty with God is more important to him than niceness. Honesty with God is more important to him than niceness. Yeah, I was going to give the example of Psalm 88. Some of you are familiar with Psalm 88. Many Psalms have a familiar trajectory. They start out with complaints and they end in trust, right? That's a fairly familiar trajectory. Pattern in the Psalms. Psalm 88 ends like this. Having a hard time seeing here with the sun. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. Darkness has become my only companion. That's Psalm 88. That's the end of Psalm 88. Darkness is my closest companion or my only companion. So even in his agonies and unceasing complaints against God, Job remained faithful according to God because he never stopped struggling with God. He never stopped talking to God about his pain. So he clinged to God honestly in suffering, and that's the second lesson and man, I really... see your notes, well, back up to your left a little bit. You'll be in the shade. Go back yourself up. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> ah, this is wonderful. <laughs> we all need a little help, don't we? <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Okay. Yeah, it's challenging. There we go. So what was lesson number one? Anybody remember lesson one? Yeah, we, we likely don't know uh, the reasons for suffering. Yeah, and lesson number two from Job was, we just talked about it. Not a trick question, I promise. We should claim honest, honestly to God in suffering. And lesson three is, we can know that suffering will come to an end. We can know that suffering will come to an end or victory uh, over-suffering. At the end of the book of Job, two things happen. Uh, two things happen. God answers Job out of the storm, number one. And number two, God's, or Job's health and happiness are restored by God. Things are set right, if you will. And Job is commended for his integrity. And like I mentioned, God's answer to Job is not what Job was asking for. Job wanted an explanation, and instead, God reminds Job that that he, God, is sovereign and not Job. And, and it's, it's weird. It's a, if you read chapters 38 through 41, you know, where, where God comes and interrogates Job, there's a lot of strange stuff. Happening there in his questions, but in chapter forty-one specifically, it's dedicated. The whole chapter is dedicated to this Leviathan, Leviathan, and 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 we're not really sure what Leviathan is, right? Yeah, it seems like it, it seems like Leviathan is described like this huge, strong, dangerous. And mythical dragon, which no man can tame, you know, only God can tame. And here's where it gets kind of interesting, because in the Old Testament, Leviathan is a symbol of the forces of evil and chaos that God overcomes. Yeah. Leviathan in the Old Testament is a symbol of chaos and evil that God overcomes. For example, in Psalm. Let me see, I don't think I have that one, no. In Psalm 74, 14, we read this. The psalmist says, you, God, crush the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. And then in Isaiah 27, do I have that? Yeah, in Isaiah 27, Leviathan is the enemy whom God will slay on judgment day. Okay, so this is Isaiah 27. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So again, Leviathan is this symbol, this this symbol of evil and the forces of chaos that God will ultimately overcome on judgment day. And in the New Testament, the enemy of God, as you know, is identified as Satan. And in Revelation twelve nine, we read this. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. See the connection there? this Leviathan, this serpent, who is Satan. He's permitted to to do a great deal of damage in the interim, right? But whatever damage God allows is set by God and God is completely victorious over Leviathan, over the forces of evil and chaos. In fact, Psalm 34, 19 says this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And that's the point of chapter 41 in Job, that God will be victorious over Leviathan. And in chapter 42 in Job, we read that he's his, his restored health, happiness. And, in, and at the end of the New Testament, we read this. Revelation 21, 1 and 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So it's interesting, in the book of Job, we have this resolution. God sets things right in Job's life, and that's the theme of Scripture, that our God will overcome mm-hmm. Leviathan, the forces of evil and chaos, and he will, in the end, set things right. I always think about, you remember the, 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 the uh, Disney movie, Beauty and the Beast? Have you all seen that? The cartoon? Oh, sure. Beauty and the Beast? Not many? Okay. Okay. So so I always think about this. Remember at the very end, at the very end, the, the teapots and and the um, the beast, they're all transformed into their into humans. And I always think about and remember m- member the beast says, once he's transformed, he looks at, at all of those around him and he says, Look at us. Remember that? They're transformed, the curse is lifted. Look at us. And I, I, I picture that as revelation, you know, the new heavens and new earth. Well, we will we'll, we'll be resurrected in new bodies and we'll look around we'll see the face of God. We'll say, look at us. Isn't this amazing? So we can know, uh, we can know that suffering will come to the end. Now here's the thing. That doesn't mean, that doesn't fix or relieve our suffering now. That doesn't, it doesn't just magically fix or relieve our suffering now. Um, but it does give us hope in our suffering. And that's the final, yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to say, the Lord encourages us that when you walk through the valley, I will be with you are Yeah, when, say, say that again, Louise. When we walk through the valley or the difficulty, His encouragement to us is that you're not alone. Yeah, you're not alone. That's exactly right. Yes, that's his promise to us. I think of Psalm 23, right? Yeah. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Yeah, yeah, very good. That is the promise. So finally, and I'm going to have to do this quickly, I apologize, but finally, I want to look at lesson four, and that is we can hope in our Redeemer, in suffering, man, how can I do this? Because our time is pretty much up. It's it it is pretty amazing that Job. I mean, and this is chapter thirteen. He says, "Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will yet I will argue my ways to his face." And um, Dan McCartney asked this question. How can Job put his hope in God if God is slaying him? Why trust a God who is doing you hurt? What is the point of having hoped in God if you're dead? And the answer is found a little bit later in the book of Job. This is Job's answer. Job 19, verses 25 through 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself with my eyes, and my eyes behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. In the middle of his suffering, Job longs for vindication. He hopes for vindication. And he expects a redeemer at the end to vindicate him before God. And, and for sure, like, we don't want to read too much into this. But in light of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, uh, this is a very significant, significant text. Because we can say this much. The Hebrew for Redeemer is this word. The Hebrew is out. Goel. Goel. And it, and it refers to a kinsman redeemer it's it's something like an advocate mediator who is actually related to us and so job seems to expect that in the end there will be an advocate mediator who will mediate between he and god and that's what job wants in in verse uh, in job chapter 9 verses 33 through 34 Job says this, he says, man, if there were only someone to mediate between us, between me and God, if there were only someone that could bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. And like I said, this this mediator, this redeemer would be a kinsman redeemer, a close relative. And so the question, does Job have some view of Jesus? This kinsman, this one who is God and man together, who mediates. He serves, Jesus serves as an advocate before God. Um, and, And even if that's reading too much into this, I don't think it is. Job has this confidence that after death, he will see God and he will be vindicated. Like he'll see him in his flesh. It's an amazing passage in the book of Job. And again, that doesn't eliminate the pain that Job experiences. He goes on to struggle and wrestle honestly with God. But he exercises hope in the midst of his pain. And we see that in the last line, of Job here. It says, My heart faints within me, and it's 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 I mean it's it's a good English translation, but it really doesn't capture the emotional power of the Hebrew because the Hebrew means something like, My emotions are completely wiped out when I think about this. I'm gonna see God, I'm gonna be vindicated. So that means that Job's patience in suffering, is not waiting for God's vindication calmly and coolly, right? He continues complaining, pouring out his heart honestly with God. We could say this. Job, in our vernacular today, Job was a hot mess. <laughs> right? I mean, he was. So none of this means he just calmly and coldly, you know, stoically walk through suffering. No, he's commended for being a hot mess with God. All that means that in our suffering, God invites us to trust in him, hope in him and be honest with him. So there are the four lessons of Job. You have that. Um, I'll, I'll I'll skip back to this. There's some questions that you could ask yourself, um, but I got to close us. So next week, we're going to start a four week. uh, We're going to start four weeks in why do Christians suffer? I just told you today that we don't know why, or we likely don't know the reasons why we suffer. In the next four weeks, I'm going to tell you, well, but in the New Testament, we are given four reasons why Christians suffer. Those are general reasons. Okay, so um, you might think I'm contradicting myself, but hopefully I'm not. Here's some questions you could write down and maybe think about this week. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you for the book of Job. We thank you that you have preserved uh, this wonderful, difficult, messy book uh, for us, Lord so that we might learn from it, so that we might be helped by it and, and helped by you. Lord, I pray that you would continually teach us to turn to you, to cling to you, um, to talk honestly with you. Lord, would you grow us in humility and, and trust and hope? Lord, we, we need you to help us. And I um, pray that our time together today is helpful. Lord, thank you. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.